Pantry Studio Production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. That mountain looked like the moon, vast and lifeless. The local people called it the Dead Mountain. It defies all human instinct to walk up the mountain of death. In sub-zero temperatures and snow, simply walking becomes a challenge. Dead Mountain is so far from civilization that if anything went wrong, it could turn fatal in moments. The closest village is the native Mansi village that is 30 miles away with no running water or electricity. From there, it's an eight-hour truck ride to the nearest town that would have even a small hospital. So why was it? that in January of 1959, 10 hikers began to climb into the Ural Mountains. They were led by Igor Dyatlov. Now, while all 10 were experienced hikers that consisted of eight men and two women, most of them were students or graduates of Ural Polytechnical Institute. The goal of the 14-day expedition was to reach Otorten, a mountain that was nearly 12 miles north of the site of the incident. This route, at that season, was estimated as a Category 3, which is the most difficult. All members were experienced in long ski tours and mountain expeditions. The group arrived by train at Ivedel, a city at the center of the northern province of Sivlaskor Orblast, on January 25th. They then took a truck to Vize, the last inhabited settlement very far to the north. They started on their march towards Ortorten from Vize on January 27th. The next day, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, was forced to go back because of illness. He was disappointed to leave, but that decision ultimately saved his life. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is episode number 27, Cries of the Unheard, The Mountain Mystery of Dyatlov Pass. The last to fall I won't shed a tear for them to see over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. They are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan. If you already support us on Patreon, thank you very much. For as little as $3 a month, you can make a big difference in help keeping these stories coming. 
Plus, at the $5 tier and above, you'll have access to the Mountain Mysteries blurs, which have become quite popular. Short Mountain Mysteries stories that are allegedly based in fact and sometimes behind-the-scenes thoughts and the process of how we produce the episodes and what we're actually thinking about who may have done what. It's all on our website. You can find a link to Patreon there at www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. You'll also find a link to our Discord server there, and you can join that and get in on all the conversations that the Mountain Mysteries family happen to be having at that particular moment. So please consider joining the Mountain Mysteries Patreon and become an even closer member of the Mountain Mysteries family. So this is about Diet Loft Pass. Many of you may have heard of it. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's direction up to the day preceding the incident. Now there are records of the hikers up through February 1st. That day, the hike started late and only managed to cover about two and a half miles, which could have been due to the burden of excess gear carried after Yudin's departure because he became ill. But there was also low visibility due to the weather. At some point, the hikers dropped off excess gear at a camp before continuing up Kalichiakal. It's also known as Dead Mountain. They set up camp on the slope of the mountain, possibly because they did not want to lose the ground that they'd already managed to cover, and they were losing daylight. But experienced hikers in the area have said it was an odd place to set up camp. They had dinner sometime between 6 and 7 p.m., and seemed to be in pretty good spirits based on their personal and trip journals. Now, one or two members of the group went outside to relieve themselves. We're thinking that was probably Simon Zalaritov and Nikolai Therabu-Bregno, since they were found to have been better dressed than the others. But it was at this point that something went catastrophically wrong. It had been agreed beforehand that Dyatlov would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vise. It was expected that this would happen no later than the 12th of February, but Dyatlov had told Yudin that he expected to be longer. So when the date passed and no message had been received, well, you can imagine there was no immediate reaction. It was kind of a planned thing. Delays of a few days were common in such expeditions. Only after the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation did the head of the institute send the first rescue groups consisting of volunteer students and teachers, and that happened on February 20th, eight days after the fact. Later, the army and police forces became involved, with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. The tent was the first thing to be found. It was facing south, and the north part of it was covered with around 15 to 20 centimeters of snow. The snow appeared to come from blowing wind and not some kind of a sudden avalanche. The individual who found the tent claims that a flashlight was on top of it, but this was laying on an additional 10 centimeters of snow. They believe this was done so they could potentially find their way back to camp. The tent had been cut from the inside and the entrance and exit was still fastened closed. The hikers had to have escaped the tent through the cuts made on the side. Most of the belongings of the hikers were still inside the tent. The next thing they found were footprints leading downhill. Though they were of people in socks or bare feet. There were the remains of a small fire under a cedar tree. 
with branches broken up to five meters up the tree. That's 15 feet. Forensic tests later confirmed that traces of skin were found embedded in the bark, indicating that the pair of people had frantically attempted to climb the tree, snapping off branches until their hands were a mass of pulpy flesh. The medical examiner recorded that some of the corpses had liver mortis on the front. Given that such marks always form on the side of a body that has been pressed against the ground, this indicated that someone had turned them over after death. The deaths seemed kind of straightforward at first. These dead were in various stages of undress, including one in his underwear, but this was explained away as paradoxical undressing. That happens in about 25% of hypothermia victims. As the hypothalamus malfunctions and body temperatures seem to rise when it's really dropping. The first body was found under the tree close to the remains of the fire, identified as Doroshenko. He had burns on his head and foot, minor cuts and bruises, dried blood on his face, and a gray foam substance on his cheeks, and that indicated a pulmonary edema. His cause of death was determined to be hypothermia. Just nearby was the body of Kravanashenko, who had similar minor cuts and bruises and was missing the tip of his nose. He had burns on his hands and the chunk of his knuckle was missing. It was later found in his mouth. His cause of death was hypothermia as well. Igor Dietlaw, the leader of the group, for whom the pass would later be named, was found 300 meters up the slope back towards the tent. He had minor cuts and bruises, a missing tooth, and blood on his lips. His cause of death also was hypothermia. His watch had stopped at 5.31 a.m. Kalmor Garova was found face down, 630 meters up the hill from the cedar tree, closest to the tent. She had minor cuts and bruises, and a large blunt force bruise of unknown origin. But her cause of death was also listed as hypothermia. Slobodin wasn't found until March 5th, between Kalmor Gorova and Dietlov on the hill. He was wearing one boot, had similar minor wounds, and a fracture to the skull. The skull fracture, however, was not serious enough to cause his death. His cause of death was also determined to be hypothermia. The last four hikers were not found until two months later when the area began to thaw. They were in a six-foot ravine. These four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the others. Zolotaryov was wearing Dubanina's fox fur coat and hat, while Dubanina's foot was wrapped in a piece of Krivenshenko's wool pants. An examination of the four bodies found in May changed the course of the whole investigation. Three of them had fatal injuries. The body of Thibo Brignol had major skull damage and both Dubinina and Zolotaryov had major chest fractures. According to Dr. Boris Vazrodini, the force required to cause such damage like this would have to have been extremely high. He compared it to the force of a car crash. Now, notably, the bodies had no external wounds as if they were crippled by a high level of pressure the group clearly realized that 
danger that they were in and did everything they could to preserve themselves. They had managed to dig out a den in the snow and lay it down with branches in an effort to keep themselves warm. Kolevitov was found to have died from hypothermia, but he had a broken nose and was missing his eyes in the soft tissue around them, likely from animal predation. His clothes were later found at a time to have traces of radioactivity. He and Zolotaryov, the one non-student member and the most experienced hiker of the group, were found in an embrace, likely trying to preserve the body heat. He died from a crushed chest and had pen and paper in hand, but was never able to write his message. Thibo Brignall was nearby and died from an impact to his skull, and Dumanina died of a crushing injury to her chest and her eyes, tongue, and soft tissue were found to be missing. She also had blood in her stomach and radioactivity on her clothes, which was found later. The inquiry was carried out in the spring of 1959, and it left a lot of questions unanswered. Why did the skiers flee to the tent, right in the path of certain death, in the wind and snow? What caused all this blunt force trauma? Why did an analysis find elevated levels of radioactivity on two of the victims' clothing? These questions were all beyond the purview of the official investigators, who, while baffled, concluded that there had been no foul play and that the students were killed by an elemental force that the tourists were not able to overcome, end quote. Well, the case was closed and the findings were archived as secret. That was routine in the Soviet Union at the time. Coming up, the theories as to how what happened happened when the Mountain Mysteries returns. Cancer is very smart, and every time we think we have a cure, cancer cells develop ways of outsmarting us. We really need to be creative in thinking about what's going to work best for children. These researchers and these doctors want it just as much as the parents do. We are so lucky to have the Children's Cancer Research Fund to support us. We're trying to save our kids. Everything else can just wait. You can help us outsmart cancer. Join the fight at childrenscancer.org. When it comes to the case of Dyatlov Mountain and exactly what happened there, there's too many theories to properly go through, but here are some of the most popular ones. Number one, foul play. There's a lot of theories attempting to explain why the group died. From involvement with the CIA and radioactive materials to war prisoner attacks to native attacks, you can even find those suggesting someone had poisoned the group through alcohol. One theory is that the Mansi, the indigenous people of the area, came to the camp and killed the hikers because they were on a religious site. But the Mansi are a very peaceful people, and they assisted with a later search operation. There's little evidence to suggest such actions, and the evidence that does is either easily explainable or simply doesn't add up. Now, the most common theory involving foul play in Russia, where the story is still very well known, is that the Russian government had an involvement with their deaths. Even family members of the hikers were convinced that the government was somehow involved. The government did close the investigations into the deaths too quickly in the people's minds. They also allegedly forcibly got rid of any information and reports, some of which were reports alleging UFO activity. 
Well, the Russian people do have a tendency to distrust their government, and there's no known motive as to why the government would cause the deaths of these young adults. There is another big mystery in the Dyatlov case, to which many researchers, for some reason, did not seem to pay any attention. And this is the behavior of two searchers, local forester Pashin and his friend Cheglikov. They conducted themselves in a strange manner, at the very least. It was on February 23, 1959, that six of them were dropped off from a helicopter in the area of Mount Otorton to look for the lost group of hikers. Well, on the first day of the search, one descended into the Ospia, where they found ski tracks from the hikers. They stated that there was where they pitched a tent, spent the night, and divided into groups of three, and went out looking for the hikers. As a result of the search, they found a tent with belongings that was not clearly seen since it was covered with snow. They said that they did not go into the tent. Well, it is a well-known fact that the Dyatlov Group tent was discovered by students Boris Lobstov and Mihail Sharevan on February 26th. According to Boris and Mihail, that day, together with Pashin, they went out to the side of Mount Kolochiakl and saw the tent from afar. Pashin said that he was tired and did not approach the tent, and the students rushed briskly to this long-awaited find. In the same place on the roof of the tent, they found a flashlight that lit up when it turned on. They also found an ice axe with which they opened the tent and saw things that were randomly laid out on it, like clothes, shoes, and blankets. The students told the investigators all about this. Found on February 26th, and he recorded it. Well, it turns out that Pashin and Cheklikov discovered the tent on February 24th, two days before. Interestingly, students Lobstov and Sharovan, who were the first to discover the tent on February 26th, according to them, said that they did not see tracks from Pashin and Cheklikov's skis, who were there two days before. Well, they were probably covered in snow, and if so, then apart from Pashin and Cheklikov arriving days earlier to the tent, then it could have been any number of people that got there first without leaving tracks. These people could have forgotten a flashlight on the roof of the tent, the battery of which not having time to discharge in the cold. The other side of that is, Pashin and Cheklikov could have left the flashlight. But why then didn't they report the loss? Because a flashlight at that time was an extremely valuable item. Seemingly, at the time, no one bothered to ask any questions. Theory number two, supernatural. There's two things about the Dyatlov Pass incident that really stoke the fires of those who believe in a supernatural explanation. The signs of radiation and an image from Thibault Brignol's camera. The cameras the hikers had are very important when it comes to the conspiracy theories surrounding the case. The body of Simon Zeltarov, shortly after being found with what appeared to be the camera or camera case affected by water was hanging around his neck. The camera stayed on Zeltarov's body under the water for three months. Now it seems as though it's even more incomprehensible why the attackers left the camera on Zeltarov after the four hikers in the den had been beaten so badly. Zeltarov sustained a beating to the head and flail chest caused by five broken ribs in two fracture lines, but the camera was intact. 
The most glaring item to begin with in the examination of Zoltarov's film was the nine frames that were missing. Now, whilst the dedicated conspiracy theorists can look for any evidence that points to a cover-up of some kind, it could have been that the remaining strip or strips of nine frames had been lost. Now, that's quite possible, as there seemed to have been no formal cataloging of all the items. Valentin Yakomenko felt that these missing frames contained important information and could have been withheld for that reason. The fact that these nine frames may have contained potentially important information will shortly be demonstrated because of the face on it. Zaltarev was taking pictures outside the tent that night, the 1st and 2nd of February 1959, right up to the last moment before whatever event caused the tragedy started. A member of the rescue team and fellow student claims Zaltarov grabbed his camera to take a picture of some lights in the sky. According to Yakominko, two of the negatives seemed to depict a section of a rocket or plane, which may have broken off after a failed military experiment of possibly a two-stage rocket launch. The notable photo on Thibor Brignol's camera is photo number 17. It shows a figure out of focus, but you can clearly see a trail. Discovery Channel made a movie about this in 2014 called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives, attributing the deaths of the hikers to the shape in that particular photo. This should serve as a warning. These photos are extremely graphic and have been posted on the Mountain Mysteries Patreon site available for access from everyone. You don't have to be a Patreon member to see them, but again, be warned. They are very graphic and not meant for children, as some contain the corpses of the victims as photographed lying out in the snow. Now, the Yeti attack theory is given some weight by local legends told among the Mansi people of such a creature, but it doesn't explain much of the other parts. There are those that believe a UFO scared them from their tent and is the cause for the radiation. There was also another group of hikers who were on the mountain that night who reported seeing orange lights. The Russian government also pushed that no one was allowed to investigate the possibility of UFO involvement. No one. There's even some strange accounts from those who went to the funeral that the bodies were glowing or that the bodies had a brown tan and that their hair had turned gray. Now, there is nothing to substantiate those claims, though. Number three, nature. Nature is the realest cause of the deaths on Dead Mountain. Russia's government deemed the cause of the incident was an avalanche. Now, the avalanche hypothesis is not new. Two federal Russian investigators completed in 2019 and 20 also concluded that the hikers were most likely drawn from their tents by a slab avalanche. Now, that is an avalanche that occurs when a slab of snow near the surface breaks away from a deeper layer of snow and it slides downhill in blocky chunks. But this hypothesis has not been widely accepted by the public, the new study noted, because neither investigation offered a scientific explanation for some of the incident's stranger details. The slab avalanche theory was criticized due to four main counter-arguments, Gom said. First and foremost, there was no sign of an avalanche when rescuers arrived at the campsite 26 days after the hikers went missing. Second, the slope where the hikers built their camp had an incline of less than 30 degrees. 
which is typically considered the minimum angle for an avalanche to occur. Third, there's evidence that the hikers fled their tents in the middle of the night, meaning the avalanche was triggered hours after the highest risk event, when the hikers built their camp, a process that involved cutting into the face of the slope to create a flat surface below their tent and a sheer wall of snow next to it, which was a common practice at the time. Finally, some of the hikers had sustained head and chest injuries that avalanches usually don't cause. In their paper, GOM and study co-author Alexander Pouzren, a researcher at the Institute for Geotechnical Engineering in Zurich, Switzerland, set out to address each one of those critiques. They studied records at the time of the Dyatlov incident to recreate the environmental conditions that the hikers more than likely faced on the night of their deaths and then used a digital avalanche model to test whether a slab avalanche could have plausibly occurred under those particular conditions. In their study, the researchers learned that the angle of the slope near the hiker's campsite was actually steeper than previous reports indicated. The slope angle measured at 28 degrees compared with the area's average slope of 23 degrees. Subsequent snowfalls in the weeks after the incident could have smoothed that angle, making the slope appear smaller while also covering signs of an avalanche. The detail took care of counter-argument number one. As for the second, while 30 degrees is considered the standard slope angle at which slab avalanches can occur, that is not a hard rule. In fact, according to the researchers, there's evidence of avalanches occurring on the slopes with angles as little as 15 degrees. A key factor is the friction value between the upper slab layer, the one that falls, and the base layer, the one that stays in place. The base of the snowpack at the Dyatlov campsite was composed of depth hoar or sugar snow, a type of grainy crystallized ice that often increases the risk of avalanches. The grainy base layer could have easily helped facilitate a slab avalanche even at a 28 degree incline. As for the delay between the hikers cutting into the slope and the avalanche tumbling onto their tents? Well, that could have been explained by strong winds that gradually blew more and more snow onto the top of the slope near the team's campsite. Conditions on the mountain were extremely windy and snow may have accumulated above the tent for as many as 9.5 to 13.5 hours before the upper slab finally gave way. This leads to the final counter-argument. The injuries. Some hikers were found with crack ribs and skulls. Injuries more in line with a car accident than an avalanche. However, the supposed slab avalanche at Dyatlov Pass was far from typical. Rather than standing in the direct path of the avalanche, the hikers would have been laying flat on their backs as they slipped, with the snow rushing down on top of them over the small ledge that they cut into the slope. Dynamic avalanche simulations suggest that even a relatively small slab of snow could have led to severe but non-lethal thorax and skull injuries, as reported by the post-mortem examination. The team's models showed that under specific environmental conditions, a slab avalanche could have plausibly toppled onto the Dyatlov group as they slipped, long after they cut into the slope to build their camp. The crushing snow all but flattened the tent, cracking bones and forcing the hikers to hastily cut their way out of their snowy sarcophaguses, dragging their wounded comrades behind as they attempted to survive the night in the open air. Sadly, none did.
While this paper doesn't explain every faucet of the diet law of mystery, it does provide the first scientific proof that at least one popular hypothesis, the avalanche hypothesis, is, in fact, plausible. That explanation may be far less exciting than aliens or yetis, but for Guam, the banality of the avalanche hypothesis reinforces something more important, the human aspect of the catastrophe. When the hikers decided to go into the forest, they took care of their injured friends. No one was left behind. I think that's a great story of courage and friendship in the face of the brutal force of nature. Well, as you can imagine, there are those who refuse to believe that the government did not have anything to do with any of this. And even some of the scientists have suggested that an avalanche would have been unlikely due to the slope of the mountain that they were on. The small amount of snow found on the tent and this not being an avalanche-prone area. The footprints that were discovered would have been wiped away. The group would not have been able to outrun an avalanche either. And there was no sign of struggle or any other human or animal approaching the campsite. Now, there was a snowstorm on the night of February 2nd, which it was determined from their diaries that was when they died. Another likely scenario would be catabotic wind. Catabotic means descending wind. It's also called gravity wind. It's a phenomenon that occurs over ice sheets or cold mountain areas, including the topography of Dyatlov Pass. The hurricane-force wind can reach up to 81 meters per second and happen quite quickly, without warning like a storm. This phenomenon often happens at night. One such wind killed skiers in Sweden in 1978 when a wind erupted out of a calm day at 20 meters per second. They abandoned their camp most died of exposure and their bodies were found with minor injuries. The bodies were found at intervals that led away from the hastily constructed snow shelter. The difference here is that one person survived. In 2019, Swedish adventurers and local guides followed the path of the hikers to replicate the exact trip that they took. They went out at the same time of year, went the same path with the same supplies. They experienced extreme and unpredictable changes in weather. The Swedish adventurers then came up with a catabotic wind theory. This is supported by situational evidence. After a tiring day of hiking, the tent was pitched hastily with standing skis and was not angled on the gradient as it should have been. A gale-force wind swept down the gradient of the mountain, threatening to rip apart their tent and they cut their way out of the tent for speed and shoveled snow on top of the tent to hold it down in the strong winds, using what they had, their bare hands. After that, they left a flashlight on top of the tent as they evacuated to act as a beacon to guide them back to camp. They went down the slope to seek shelter in the trees and lower elevation from the winds of the mountain. They were buffeted by debris, lifted by the strong winds. The three found on the slope dead where they fell as they descended the mountain without shoes and light clothing. Slobodin, Kalmagora, and Dyatlov. Doroshenko, a notoriously brave man, and Kristen Shinko took responsibility for constructing a fire, with Doroshenko climbing the cedar tree to break off the branches for the fire. The other four were to build shelters in the ravine to shield them from the winds. Well, these wicked winds would explain the burns or collapsing into the fire as they succumbed to hypothermia. Gravinashenko's knuckle injury was from biting it to stay conscious. The remaining four members went into the ravine and huddled together in a snow shelter. 
but the snow shelter collapsed onto them, crushing the last four members. Dubonina had been crawling into the shelter when it collapsed on all of them. Soft tissue decomposition happens naturally, particularly in water. The individuals in the ravine had been in water, refroze during melting and freezing periods. Another wind-related theory put forward by the American researcher Donnie Eckhart, as well as by some Russian scientists, is that the severe winds blowing over the dome of the mountain created a, a Karaman vortex street of whirlwinds, which produced a low-frequency sound that is not entirely audible, but vibrates hair cells in the air, causing nausea and intense psychological discomfort. Under that kind of onslaught in the pitch dark, the students could have very well been overcome by feelings of fear and panic. Researchers found that natural anomaly at the Dyatlov Pass. In addition, the researchers told about other unusual manifestations of nature on the pass, warm air coming out from under the snow. That phenomenon, he had to observe more than once in the winter area of the Dyatlov Pass, by the way, which could be explained by the release of gas to the surface, as well as strong hurricane winds and winter thunderstorms. But what about the radioactivity? Kolevitov was a student of nuclear physics, and so there was a possibility that he could have come into contact with radioactive materials. Dubinina was an engineering and economics major. There was also the fact that it was two months later before the bodies with radioactive traces were found. And there were several possibilities for contamination. The concerning part is that the three items of clothing had abnormally high amounts of radiation. The main radiologist that conducted examinations of the clothes said that the clothes could not have been contaminated above the normal level by normal circumstances without having been in the presence of some kind of radioactive contaminated place. He deemed this particular contamination exceeded the normal level for people who work with radioactive substances. There are those that believe the radioactivity to be a little more than just a red herring leading people away from the nature conclusion and to a conclusion of conspiracies. You know, at the end of all of these investigations, the easy answer to what happened is nature. Nature is a cruel and vicious beast itself. Not everyone is willing to accept the easy answer, though. The conspiracy and the answers that don't quite add up are ongoing for over 60 years, and that's what keeps this thing being talked about. The 60-plus-year-old case is still alive, and practically anywhere you go, people have heard of it. The only one to survive Dyatlov Pass was Yuri Yudin, who was the person who fell sick on the outset of the expedition and had to return. He avoided the fate of others. He passed away on the 27th of April, 2013, he was 75 years old. Join us on Thursday nights at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for the Mountain Mysteries gatherings on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Please support the Mountain Mysteries with a one-time donation or become a Patreon subscriber for more benefits. Join us on our Discord server and find out what everybody's talking about during the episodes on the Mountain Mysteries and visit us online at themountainmysteriespodcast.com. I'm Chris Lone for the Mountain Mysteries. Stay mysterious. If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. 
Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.